You're listening to The Wild Voices Project, and today I'm speaking to Stephen Moss, naturalist, author, and BAFTA award-winning television producer, and he also makes a very mean fried egg sandwich. So what role did nature and wildlife play in your childhood, and how important were they to you growing up? Nature was incredibly important to me growing up. I suppose specifically birds, to be honest. I wasn't particularly interested in other forms of... Actually, that's not true. No, you know, we, we did what kids did in those days in the 60s. We collected frogs and toads and newts and brought them home. And mm. You know, so yeah, hands-on nature was very, very important. And it all began. My, my late mother um, always told me that when I was two or three years old, she took me down to the river to feed the ducks. And I saw some what I, I thought were funny black ducks. And I asked her what they were. And she said, I don't know, but we've got a book at home. And we went home and someone had bought us, I don't know who, bought us an Observer's Book of Birds, a little brown book with mostly black and white drawings, which was very helpful because they were black and white birds and they were, of course, coots. Mm. And from then, I was hooked. And that was it. And, and I can't remember not being interested in birds. I did school projects on birds. Um... But more than that, as I say, we, we would go out and explore nature as a matter of course from a very early age, from four or five years old. We'd go over the back fence to what we called the forest, which was a little strip of elm trees and scrub, probably 15 feet, 20 feet. When you say high. we, this was you and friends, you and siblings? Uh, you and me and neighbours. No, I didn't have any siblings. I was an only child. So me and neighbours, actually, yeah. I still remember, yeah. Little boy down the road, Duncan, and, and other friends. And we'd... We'd go over into this forest and we'd sort of climb trees and build dens and stuff and probably from six or seven, eight, do that more. And then from eight or nine, we'd explore around the local gravel pits, which were actually quite dangerous. <laughs> People drown and things. Um, and I, had a, I was brought up in a single-parent family. My grandmother brought me up with my mother when going out to work. And my grandmother was very, understandably, very protective. I used to mm. be really annoyed that she wouldn't let me out with my friends you know, to cycle to the next village when we were eight, which sounds insane now, you know, you would never let an eight-year-old out. But yeah. um, but from the age of about nine, she came in, um, and we explored the pits, as we called them. And this was with friends who didn't grow up to be bird watchers. You know, this was just what boys did, really, then. Yeah, yeah. That over, actually, that, um, that overprotectiveness, kind of, there's this sort of idea that, kids growing up when you were growing up were all allowed to roam free from sort of the age of five whenever they wanted but we were yeah I mean we walked to school I walked to school from the age of five with an older girl okay who I still know Um, Nicola was two years older and she Nikki she would take me to school and from the age of about six I went on my own and I walked back on my own it was about half a mile it was across a few not main roads but roads yeah um we went out cycling you know, from seven-ish, seven-eight-ish, you know. Yeah. It's just what you did. And and my wife, Suzanne, came up with a great line for this. She said, your mother used to say to you, now, off you go, don't get dirty, be back home for tea. And tea was at six o'clock, mm. and it's what you now call dinner, but we called it tea. Um, and it sounds like some kind of sort of idyllic, enid, blight and childhood. But, you know, <laughs> this was in the... In the late 60s, it was in um, the suburbs of London. It was in the place that Kenneth Allsop wonderfully called that messy limbo that is neither town nor country. Mm. We weren't privileged. Mm. We were um, what I think you'd call now lower middle class families. All our parents had left school at 14, 15, 16, gone out to work, um, done okay, done enough to buy their own small little box-like houses, you know, and, 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 and had a very strong ambition for their children to do well and mm. we did we all went to university you know so we were that generation who 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 i suppose rose from um backgrounds that were very different from the famous five you know it wasn't privileged it was very it was comfortable but but you know our, our parents had suffered our parents had lived through the war um my nan had lived through two world wars and you know so they they had grown up, they were part of the generation who had grown up having responsibility from an early age and going out from an early age. So they let us do it as well. It wasn't really, it wasn't questioned. 
Hmm. What I don't know, because we didn't see, as Mark Cocker famously says, you didn't know any girls, we didn't see any girls. I don't know if, if women of my age had the same experience. I suspect not. I think girls were more protected and possibly in those days didn't want to go out and do the sort of things we did, which were fairly messy. But, you know, it, it was basically you went out, you got bored... Boredom is a wonderful thing for children because it makes them think of something to do. Mm. We didn't have anything else to do. You know, it's a bit of a cliche, but there weren't um, smartphones and iPads and things. So we started building dens. We started exploring. We started messing about. A bit of minor vandalism of trees and things, you know. Um, right. But that's just what kids did. And it sounds very idyllic now. And it wasn't. It was just normal. Yeah. Well, because there was this kind of trust, I suppose, both in the kids that they were going to be fine in society or in the world around them, that that was a safe place for them to be. And there weren't any of those other more immediate distractions intervening, were there? No, they were worried about stranger danger, funnily enough. A little flashes. They were were men who'd sort of open their flies and wave their bits at you. And I remember once this happened to us. And I I don't remember it. I remember we were with some older girls, actually, and they were about nine and the police were called and we were interviewed, but it was we weren't bothered by it. You know, some, yeah, some sad guy somewhere, you know. But you, 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 you had your peers there, so you didn't feel in danger. Traffic drove much more slowly. I mean, mm. When I was ten, before I went to secondary school, my friend Glyn and I cycled, and I remember we came back and worked it out. We'd done forty miles around West London, you know. We'd cycled all round out the Commons, out in Surrey, and then back up to Hampton Court. Back, I think we were collecting things that were given away free by garages in those days. You could go in and they were giving you FA Cup stickers or Olympic stickers or medals or something. And not real Olympic medals. Uh, and you'd go <laughs> into the garages and collect them. So we went off and did this. And we got back and my nurse, where have you been? And we said, well, we were yeah, not, not very far, you know. We'd be miles. <laughs> um, but traffic was sort of slow. You know, yeah. Having said that, people I know did get, you know, a friend of mine did get knocked over and you know, quite badly hurt. I mean, you know, but but parents weren't overprotective. I mean, they lived through the war, for goodness sake. You know, my mum used to tell me that she used to walk to work at 15 with bombs falling around her. That's quite interesting, actually. So that, you know, that really extreme danger that they faced yeah. had only recently fallen away and it kind of, you know, probably put in perspective, you know, letting your kid go out when there's not a war on, when it's in peacetime, feels Absolutely. relatively quite safe. Absolutely, and of course for us, the war's in like distant ancient history. It was 20 yeah. years before. I mean, I find that incredible now to yeah. think that, that, you know, it's almost equivalent just before the millennium now. Yeah. My mother was, you know, experiencing this war. She was a teenager during the war. It was a very seminal time for her. Um, you know, so I think that is true. Um and it's, it is sad that children are not given the same freedom now as we had. It's perfectly understandable why they're not, but, you know, we did learn a lot from it, a lot of practical field skills. I used to be very good at finding bird's nests. I'm hopeless now, couldn't do it save my life, but 40 years ago, I was quite good at it. <laughs> um, and did that interest continue when you were a teenager and... Into your early 20s? Yeah, I was very, very lucky. One major thing changed my life. Mm. I went to grammar school. Yeah. And on the first day, they put us in alphabetical order so that Mr. Hodges, the, the master, who was a very, you know, pre-war schoolmaster, so he could remember our names. It was easier for him. And my name's Moss. And there were no ends, And there was a boy called Daniel Azorio. Uh, and Daniel and I got chatting. And we found that we had a mutual interest in birds and wildlife. And without Daniel, we I would never have carried on. Mm. I mean, I, we were the only kids in our school who were interested. Daniel's parents, David and Martine, who are still very much with us and, and um, I'm very close to, they, they had four children, Daniel was the oldest, and they used to say, look, let's go off. Um, they would sort of pile into a camper van and go off half terms and holidays mostly half terms actually in, in autumn I remember to places like Norfolk right um, where they had friends and they just sort of dump all their you know all of us on these friends who were incredibly tolerant and incredibly happy and they said well another kid's not going to make any difference come along you know yeah and I was you know quite a spoiled only child and quite cosseted and 
you know, living in a family was fantastic. And I'm still very close to Daniel's family. I still see his parents. Um, you know, they were like a sort of adoptive family for me. Daniel is now an extremely eminent professor of zoology at um, Sussex University. He's one of the world-leading um, biologists, you know, incredibly clever guy. And I, I, I learned a lot, and, you know, he, he's godfather to my daughter Daisy, and we're, you know, we're still very close. And, but he and I, therefore, you know, motivated each other, and from about 13 we went on these holidays, and from 14, 13, 14, we cycled off to Staines Reservoirs, which was about five miles away, and did wildfowl counts, and noted everything, and sent our ideas, and then we went off camping to Stodmarsh, then at 14, 15, we went, cycled down to Dungeness, for the October half term and stayed at the bird. Was Observatory. that a bit further? That, that oh, would yeah, be a bit further, yeah. Long way, about 60 miles. And right. My mum dropped me off in at my aunt's in Sussex and we cycled off. Cycled to the New Forest at 14 um, and spent three or four days camping there. Yeah. You know, again, incredible to think this now. I've written about this in This Birding Life. Yeah. You know, it's a, there's a lot of accounts of this because. Uh, and, and then. You know, then of course at fifteen, sixteen, you sort of discover going out and beer and girls and stuff. And and I stopped. I stopped sort of keeping notebooks on birds. I stopped going out very much, bird watching. I went to yeah. Then went to university to Cambridge. Did, did very little bird watching for three years. Lots of other things intervened. You yeah. Know. Um, and at that point, I thought. I remember graduating. I was twenty-two and thinking, right, was bird watching a sort of childhood hobby like stamp collecting or you know that you do that you quite enjoy it's quite mm. fun but that's it or do I want to carry on doing it yeah and I thought where can I go to test this theory out <laughs> and I went to Shetland for a week <laughs> I got the train up to Aberdeen I got the boat overnight you know and I discovered birds again and it was amazing and that that hooked me again from that point I knew that was it you know my life would be be Birds will always be part of my life. And you just did that Shetland trip just on your own. Yeah. And kind of rediscovered or, you know, reconnected with the with the passion or with yeah. the interest. Yeah, snowy owl and redneck fellow <sighs> and all sorts of things. And nice. it was just fabulous. And I just... We always get the phone, don't we? <laughs> So did you do that? Um, you just did this Shetland trip just on your own and reconnected with your earlier passion that you know yeah. you put down for a few years. Yeah, it was the summer between leaving Cambridge and going to the BBC, um, right? Joining the BBC, and, and I just thought I've got to get somewhere that's special, and I did, and it was it was just fabulous. You know, snowy owl, Bonaparte's gull we saw, uh, redneck fowler. I remember those flying around when I walked back in the evening. It was just you know just wonderful, yeah. and I think I realised that birds were always going to be part of my life from that point yeah and did you then become you'd had your friendship with Daniel mm. through your teenage years and you then picked the hobby back up did you then sort of become part of the wider birding bird watching community in those days no not at all and that's it's very interesting I wrote about this in Bird in the Bush there were bird watching communities there were grapevines of twitches mm. mostly yeah. the generation a little bit older than me now I'm yeah. 56 now probably in their 60s and 70s and they would ring each other and go off and twitch and stuff. And I didn't do that. I went to Scilly when I was 25. I went off to the Isles of Scilly for a week, and I enjoyed that very much. But And I went bird watching, but I didn't know any other bird watchers. Daniel and I would still go off to places. And other bird watchers weren't very friendly. They were all blokes. They were mostly older than me. They just weren't, you know, I don't know why it was. I joined the London Natural History Society, and when I was a kid, actually, we went off on a few trips, Daniel and I, but, you know... Again, just day trips to places. So I didn't really. And then by then I got married and had a young family in my late 20s. Um, and then I met my second great birding friend, Neil. And Neil and I, um, I went to Israel. That's right. I, I, I decided to go on a birding holiday. I'd been to one to India when I was 25. And then I went to Israel for a week with Sunbirder. Mm. 
And I met Neil, and we were similar sort of situation. We both had young families. He lived in not too far from me in Watford. You know, I was in North London. And we then met again at a, on a pelagic trip out from um, Land's End uh, to see seabirds. Uh, I was about 30 then, this was 1990. And we both said, actually, why don't we go off on weekends together? We went up to Norfolk and we used to go off on holidays together. Yeah. Um, and that was great because that gave me someone else to go off with, you know, um, and do things with. And I think, again, that kept my interest going because, again, it was flagging a bit. I had a young family. I lived in Finsbury Park in North London, which is pretty hopeless for birds. And I'd go off again. I'd go off to the North Kent marshes. I'd go off places. But I, I felt a bit purposeless at that point. And meeting Neil was great because we would go off together and, and do stuff. You yeah. know, every New Year's Day, we'd do a big day around West London and not a fairly modest number of species, about 70 species, but we always enjoyed it. It was always, you know fun to do and I still stay in touch with you we don't go birding anymore sadly you know again you know things change I've moved you know but we did you know we had a lot of good years where we we went off and did things I think I've a I think I've had a similar experience which which is that I've always done more birding or more kind of purposeful and regular birding when there have been other people involved and when I've had people to ring up or text and message and go should we go and do this or should we go and do that and I like birding on my own just as much but there's you know you have this great line at the end of sky full of starlings about the people are as important as the the birds Mm. you know and looking back on the memories that you have it's the people that you did it with as much as the birds themselves that are important definitely and obviously going back to my mother who I I mean I didn't also say of course that my mother kept me going in my teenage years and that she mm. would take time off. We'd go up to the Natural History Museum when I was younger and stand in the bird gallery all day, which I loved. She must have been bored witless, you know. <laughs> and then she took time off, took me to Minsmere, took me in my teenage years, took me around Wales to look for red kites, took me to the Isles of Scilly, took me out of school for two weeks to go to the Isles of Scilly when I was 14. Um, you know, uh, and she very much pushed that because it was my passion and my interest. Um... You know, so I've, I, I owe a lot to a lot of, well, a few people who helped me with that because it's, it's very easy to lose interest. And one of the things I didn't have was a local patch until I was 35-ish and living in Sheen in West London and yeah. stumbled across my car, got a puncture or broke down or something and I was waiting for the AA to come. And wandered into this little place called Lonsdale Road Reservoir, and I couldn't believe it. it was just full of birds, and it was a you know cycle ride from my house. So I thought, right, I'm going to make this my local patch. Mm. This was the mid nineties, and that was the first local patch I had. And I went there, you know, every two or three days for several years, and and really built up an understanding of of that. I wrote about that in this birding life in the Guardian originally, and a woman came up to me one day she said oh, are, you, are you the chap who writes in the Guardian I said yes she said um, now you keep talking about my local patch I said oh yes yes and she said well it's not your local patch is it it's our local patch <laughs> okay, no, fair, fair point did you know. change it after that <laughs> I don't know whether I did actually no, it was my local patch you know but, um, and that became you know, local patches have become very important since I've had one two three four five including my garden here in over the years yeah um, you know and and, and that's very important for me because it gives you the rhythms of the year. It allows you to go on your own. gives you a sense of purpose. Sense of purpose is very important in birding. You know, I'm, I, I quite like that. I like, the, I like the way a patch limits you in the sense that you have to keep going around the same territory, but it changes all the time. Mm. And that's very important to me. So I don't just wander out to places in Somerset. I tend to go to the same two places almost all the time. Yeah. And people very often, you know, most birders I meet and get into conversation with will ask where's your patch or yeah. what's your patch list? It's a very important concept to, you know, within the community as well. Yes, and of course for other wildlife as well, you start noticing yeah. other things. You know, I've seen more otters on my patch than I have anywhere else in Britain just because I go there a lot and not many other people do. Yeah. You know, I'd probably see more if I was a better mammal watcher, but, you know, <laughs> I'm a patient. But, you know, so you, you, you just get to know the place and you get to know, like John Clare did, he knew that that tree by Sawdy Well was the particular tree. I'm like that. I know, you know, oh, that's the tree I saw the cuckoos in. That's the tree where the peregrine perches or the hoppy perches, you know. Mm. Uh, and and this is the end of the what I call the wooded drove where, you know, if I'm going to see tree creeper or woodcock, this is where I'm going to see them. Yeah. You know, and I love that. I love that forensic detail 
of knowing and time-wise as well you know that the white throat will be bouncing up from that patch of brambles on or around the you know 15th 20th of april mm. and you know you know from yet again the more years you spend on a patch the more you know what you're likely to see and i love that it's very important to me um, and one thing that comes across in your writing as well is that as well as as well as friends and buddies who you've done bird watching and trips with, there are also people who've played a played a kind of mentorship role for you. I think, or at least you, it comes across that you've learnt from people, from contemporaries, or from people who are slightly older, and also from people who are, you know, long since dead, but from their writing, like John Clare, for example. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's people. You know, you. As a child, I read people like Eric Hosking, mm. Eye for a Bird, Ian Wallace and James Ferguson Lees, of course, were great gurus and sort of godfathers of modern bird watching in Britain, both still with us, and both have become friends. And, and I, I'm always terribly, you know, day, Ian will ring me up and Brett Westwood, my dear friend and colleague, he'll ring Brett up. And we're both, it's like, you know, if you were a young comedian and, you know, David Jason was ringing you up, or if you were a footballer and Pele was ringing you up, it's like that. You know, yeah. These guys are, were the, the, the people who pioneered, before I was born, pioneered birding in Britain and, and are still working away, you know, in, in, you know, even both being in their 80s now. And I love that. I love the fact that I've got to know them. That's very important to me. Um, I didn't have many mentors as a kid. You know, it was, it was definitely mm. peers. It was definitely, you know, Daniel and I, I suppose, mentored each other in a sense. But no, I missed out on that. Uh, and some people I know had an adult mentor at that time who was very important to them. It might be a parent or grandparent or, or friend of the family. But, you know, that that didn't happen. But later on... Um, I mean, Derek Moore was incredibly important to me because he opened my eyes more to the conservation side and and, and to fighting for what you believe in, which I do in my book, Wild Kingdom, and that's dedicated to Derek, who yeah. was just an extraordinary um, man who, who was, as I said in his victory, you know, to say Derek didn't suffer fools gladly would be, be an obvious statement. You know, he was a cantankerous old bugger. But that was why he was so good at saving Britain's wildlife. <laughs> but he also worked with people. He also made, you know, um, he had a real passion for converting farmers uh, and did so. Many farmers became good friends of his, you know, even if they disagreed on some things. You know, Derek would gain their respect. And, and, that. and that, I think that's very important in conservation that we work with people. And Derek taught me that yeah. as well. But relatively recently, you know, in the last, well, I knew him for 20 years before he died two years ago. So but he was a very important um, person in my life. Yeah, I was chatting to, um, I went and stayed with Jill Sutcliffe, who I think says she knows you. She's based down in um, Sussex. She's involved in anti-fracking campaigns down there, but she also knew Derek, and she was describing to me, she said he had this way of, when it came to farmers and getting them on side, just this kind of charm and this way of yeah. just just getting chatting to them immediately. He was a Suffolk boy, and he put his accent on a bit. <laughs> He always had a, a you know, accent. Um, but yeah, he did. And I meet people. I met F- um, Philip Merricks from the Hawk and Owl Trust recently. I went to an event and sat next to him and we were chatting. And he said, no, he said, no, there's this chap, a very, very good friend of mine. I, don't, I probably didn't know him, called Derek Moore. And it's like, and this happens to me all the time. I meet people and <laughs> say, well, Derek really influenced me. And Philip's a great farmer for conservation, you know. And Derek helped him and advised him, you know, and he was in Kent. I didn't know Derek knew him. Why would Derek have known him? Derek was in Suffolk and Wales. But, you know, he had this ability to reach out to people, you know. Um, and and he also, he was also a passionate birder. That's the other thing. You mm. know? There are conservationists who don't really go out watching wildlife and I'm always very suspicious of them. <laughs> um, because to me, you've got to have that passion to just, get out with your binoculars and enjoy it. And a few years ago, I, I escaped the royal wedding to went to France where Derek had a house and we spent five days intensive birding with a few other people out there as well who we got to know. Um, and it was just such a joy to be with someone with that great skill, but also great passion for birds. And I, mm. I still have that when I'm you know, the age you was then. Um, you mentioned briefly that you started working at the BBC as well. Um, how did your passion for wildlife translate or begin to shape your work there and then your, your, you know, your growing interest in not just watching wildlife or birds but also working to conserve it? Well, strangely, 
Um, it didn't for many years. Mm. Well, or it didn't properly for many years. What happened is I joined the BBC as a trainee, production trainee, and you go off to different places for three months at a time. And I knew that the Natural History Unit existed, and I knew they had a weekly programme called Nature. So I went through the sort of official channels and said, look, you know, can I come for an attachment there for three months? And I met two men, Robin Hellier and Andrew Neal, who were running Nature at the time. And we met in London and we chatted and I obviously didn't put them off and they said, yes, do come. And I'm saying this because I met Andrew Neal again the other day for the first time for 30 years. Um, amazing man. And he, he, you know, he and Robin and my colleagues there, you know, took this very wet behind the ears, very inexperienced trainee and were very encouraging the other man who was was Tony Soper. Tony was the presenter. Tony was the sort of Bill Oddie of his day. Still, again, still with us, still full of energy, amazing man in his late 80s now. Um, and Tony was very um, encouraging to me. But I did my three months and I went back to London and I got a job in the BBC Education Department. And people said to me, why don't you work in the Natural History Unit? And I said, well, I got, you know, I'd married by then. I had a young family coming. I lived in London. Units in Bristol, you know, I was quite London-centric, I've been brought up there. Mm. And, and I had this idea that I shouldn't turn my hobby into my job. And I, it was a really strong idea, it was like, you know, you've got to have a hobby, I love bird watching. it's my hobby. Mm. And there's something to be said for that, but not much. Because having done it, <laughs> and I started, actually, it was the writing that started before the television. Right, okay. Was from, I was trying all the way through my 20s and failing. And then the world changed a bit and they, the culture of freelance writing came up a bit and there were birding magazines and things. And I started writing in my early 30s, so I hadn't written before that since I was at university. And I started writing articles and then started writing books on wildlife and gradually developed a, a, a little bit of a name, really just someone who could, you know, when I went to bird fair, I'd give the odd talk, you know, but... Still very low key, and I'd met Bill. I met Bill Oddie when I was a trainee, and we'd we'd spent hours talking about birds when we were working together on a completely different program, nothing to do with wildlife. And Bill, when Bill and I parted on that time, he said to me, "Look, if you're ever in a position where you're a producer and you want to make a series about bird watching, I'd love to present it." Mm. And Thirteen years later, we did. But that thirteen years, I was putting this idea in most years. And you put an idea in and they say, oh, no, we don't think that quite works. No, no, it's not really right. Oh, no. Yeah. And I just lost interest. And then one year, a new boss arrived and my old colleague, Fiona, who'd, who'd been a contemporary of mine, she was my immediate boss. And the two women said to me, look, you've got this idea about bird watching, birding with Bill Oddie. You know, shall we take it again? And I said, mm. well, yeah, go on then, you know, give it another go. And Fiona tells me that she went in and saw a man called Michael Jackson. Not that one. Um, Michael Jackson was the controller of BBC Two, and he was new. And he'd written an article saying we should be making more programmes about what people do in their spare time. Right. You know, we do gardening and cookery, yeah. but we're not really doing anything else. Very perceptive man. And well, so, I mean, that still works today, doesn't it? Some of the biggest TV shows today. Bake Off. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, you know. So we, we thought, okay, let's put this in again. And we put it in very much as a hobby-based programme. And we said, look, there's loads of members of the RSPB. And Fiona tells me that, that Michael Jackson looked at this piece of paper, and they normally had like two minutes for each idea. Mm. And he said, oh, that's very interesting. What's an avocate? <laughs> um, and Fiona says to me, she thought, shall I correct him? Or shall I say, an avocate is a very beautiful bird, and it's the symbol of the RSPB, and they've got a million members. At which point he went, okay, yeah, we'll have that. <laughs> and my life changed. Yeah. Through that conversation, I owe a lot to Fiona and Glenn Bentz and her boss, who, who, you know, had faith in me. They said, look, we've got this expert. He's written books. Yeah. You know, I'd written one book on birds at that point. But, yeah, he's written books on birds. He knows everything. Bill knows everything. It'll be great. And I rang Bill, who I knew a little bit. We'd faith met occasionally, vaguely knew who I was, you know, it was yeah. like that. And I rang him and he said, oh my goodness, really? And I said, yeah, let's be better meet, you know. And we planned the series. You know, first thing Bill said to me was, where should we go for the first programme? And I said, Wins me. And he went, good idea. Yeah, I was thinking that, you know. And we were off. Yeah. And we, you know, Bill and I worked together very well because we were very different. I'm, I'm a glass half full man, he's a glass <laughs> half empty man, but that's good because he would push me and push me if it wasn't quite right. But we both believed in doing it organically, making it feel real, making it about bird watching, not just birds. That was really important. And we invented a new genre of programme making 
which everyone does now, a new way of presenting, which Bill invented, which was mumbling, not looking at camera, saying you don't know something, missing things, not seeing things, getting frustrated. Being quite real rather than yeah, polished. Absolutely yeah. real. Yeah, polished was not the word, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was only, I think I must have only been about eight or nine when it came out, I don't know, something like that. And I'd previously watched. If I remember correctly, Bird in the Nest was before Birding with Bloody. And I spoke to, I met Peter Holden a couple of times and he said, goodness me, someone remembers Bird in the Nest. And for me, it was a really, it was a really influential program. And then Birding with Bloody felt, I mean, you know, obviously I wasn't a very developed television critic at the age of eight or nine or whatever, but it did feel a bit different and it felt very, um, very experiential. And I've got really strong memories of, you know, watching... Bill on windy hillsides not seeing birds and that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, someone said, I got a lovely, um, I can't remember his other name, but a chap called John was a very good birder in Kent and he, he, he met me at some conference. He said, now my 85-year-old mother understands why I go bird watching. Mm. And people, an old lady, a lady of 96 wrote to Bill and she said, I cannot go out anymore and watch birds, but yesterday... You took me out for a walk, mm. and that was the well. That was the the best letter we had. The other one was an email. Got emails. No one had emails. We got emails like the first day after the program, and we barely started using email. This is nineteen ninety seven, and it said, "Dear Bill and Stephen, I watched your program last night. I went out and bought a pair of binoculars with my beer money. Yours, sober but curiously contented, Darren." <laughs> And I still remember that, you know, and people were writers, a guy wrote to us from Holland saying, you know, I really enjoyed your programmes on BBC here. Mm. You know, we got feedback. And yeah. We were like, must be doing something right. Yeah. You know? And, and we, we, we debated how to do it, but broadly, we let Bill go. We put a microphone on him and let him go. Bill is a jazz musician. He's not a, con- you know, David Adams is yes. a concert pianist, but yes. he's a jazz musician. So what you do is you put a microphone on him, send him off and he chats, and some of it's complete rubbish or dead ends, and most of it's pretty good, and then you edit it within an inch of its life, but you leave the pauses in and the ums and the ers mm, and whatever. Yeah. So actually it was quite a carefully crafted programme with some brilliant editors. But it felt natural and we would edit Bill's stuff first and then put the pictures in. Um, you know, we had two cameras. We had a camera on Bill and a camera doing the wildlife and had a great team of people, fantastic camera people and editors. Um, and four million people watched it and it was a huge success, you know. That, that changed my life completely. I was 37 um, I went off. My, I went off to Jordan with Derek Moore. Uh, while I was there, sadly, my mother died. I came back. I had a week or two off. I came back to work, and there was a letter on the desk. This shows you how long ago it is. Twenty years ago, a letter from a man called Alistair Fothergill. Alistair is the the Alex Ferguson of wildlife filmmaking. Yes. Um, I told him that once. He said, "I'm not bloody retired." <laughs> great man. Um, and Alistair had written me a letter saying, "Look." really enjoyed birding with Pilotti. We should have done it. And as Bill said to him later, well, we offered it to you and you didn't want it. Which was true. Bill had offered it lots of times. Um, Natural History Unit, very caught up in, you know, very beautifully produced, lovely wildlife films. Not really wanting this little bearded chap to chat about birds. But Alistair realised they they should have done it. And he said, right, I hear you've got a second series, which I didn't know. Would you like to come and make it with us? This is, you know, you're playing for, you know, Dogster Rovers or, or Yeovil <laughs> Town, no yeah. disrespect. And you get signed by... And you get signed by United <laughs> or, you know, it was like that. Yeah. Except yeah. without the money. Um, uh, and, that, and we went on from there, you know, and it, it, it picked up from there. But I might be skipping ahead of it, but it feels like Spring Watch and Autumn Watch were sort of an evolution on the Birding with Bilotti style Absolutely. of presenting. And again... And Bird in the Nest, of course. And Bird, in, and Bird in the Nest, definitely. But it feels like almost, again, they were an innovation, but an innovation that couldn't have happened without standing on those shoulders. Because yeah. the whole doing it live kind of thing, which again is now a lot more common, mm. you know, was relatively uncommon. Well, almost well, not done when Springwatch first started. What actually, was that, of course, natural history television started as live television. All television mm. started as live television. Yes, yeah. And Look, with Peter Scott, was live, yeah. with films brought in, and was very yeah. similar to Springwatch, except with rather posher accents. Mm. Um, and then, over the years, television had become more and more complicated, and more and more graphics-led and music-led, and yeah. they'd really gone away from live. And they'd done a few experiments in the, in the 90s. The natural history unit had done them, and they were 
almost without exception, apart from Bird in the Nest, bloody awful. And the reason they were so bad was that they, they, they thought that live meant live. This is Brexit means Brexit again, <laughs> isn't it? They thought that live meant live, which meant that they thought that you had to go on air at six o'clock in the afternoon and show what was happening. Well, often there was nothing happening, and they did a programme called Heading South about geese migration in November on the used washes, and it was just, you know, hilariously awful, because <laughs> they were, you know, trying to film geese that had gone a mile away with a shaky lens in the wind, and someone was trying to comment on it, and it was just, you know, car crash television. And they'd sort of given up, and five or six years had passed, and we Bill kept suggesting a thing called Brookside, which was basically go to a village and film it, film what the birds are doing live and the people, you know. Yeah. Clever idea. It's a good um, idea. And then what happened in 2002, the science department, with Bill and Simon King, strangely, did a series called, a program called Live from Dinosaur Island, um, which they then, before that had gone out, they decided to commission Wild in Your Garden, which was the pre-spring watch. Yeah. Live from Dinosaur Island was another total disaster <laughs> where the tide came in and washed away where they were trying to do things because they hadn't worked out when the tides were happening uh, the presenters didn't know what was going on and rather hilariously um, the title suggested you'd find a dinosaur whereas of course they didn't find anything I mean mm. they found a few ammonites or a few bones or something <laughs> but if so uh, you know so suddenly there was real pressure and they said to us oh my god you know this live television doesn't work but we've commissioned Wild in Your Garden. And amazingly, they didn't cancel it. You know, they could have done. Yeah. I can't remember the exact timing, but I think... Anyway, um, we were under a lot of pressure. And we were in Bristol in people's gardens. Yeah. You know, with badges and blue tits and whatever. And yeah. hilariously, again, oh, I love television, because they said to us, the commissioners have said, right, we'd like you to go on air at 8pm and 11pm. And we said, no, 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 you mean 11am, don't you? And they said, no, no, 11pm. And we said, well, but it is, it's dark. <laughs> and nothing's happening. And they just said, well, yeah, I'm sure you'll think of something. And a couple of colleagues of mine who'd done a series called The Abyss, which was a live submersible dive off Monterey, had realised that when they came on air at two o'clock in the afternoon, British time or whatever time they were on the air, mm. and it went through the weekend... Quite likely, they'd be moving. There'd be absolutely nothing to show. Yeah. So they decided to... They could run in video of what they'd taken three hours earlier. Yeah. But get Kate Humble to present it as live. So they weren't cheating. They, you know, Kate said, look, earlier on, we saw this. Uh, actually, they did get some great live stuff as well. But so she would chat about it with an expert or whatever. But it felt like... It, well, it was live. You know, they were commenting on what had happened. It was a bit like today at Wimbledon. Yes, or match of the, the highlights. Yes, yeah, the highlights. Yeah. And what Simon and Martin, who'd done that, said to me, they were working with me on writing your garden, they said, look, let's use the same... Yeah, of course. And that's why it worked. Because mm-hmm. we would say, earlier this morning, when birds fledged, they all fledged, and our cameraman was out there, and he captured it, and Bill would chat away about it with Kate or Simon or whatever, you know, and it worked. And we did do some nighttime stuff, and we had a million viewers every night, but... Um, there was very little happening, but we sort of got away with it by showing what happened earlier in the day. Um, yeah. You know, and that then led to Britain Goes Wild, which led to Spring Watch. You know? Yeah. But yeah, absolutely. Bill's style, Bill's ability to do things live, technology. You know, Bird in the Nest, they had a man in the back of a nest box. They had to cut the nest box back away. Put I feel like it, I might be misremembering, but I feel like it was just Bill and Peter sitting in a caravan. It was. It was Bill and Peter sitting in a caravan, Simon roaming around, yeah. but they had literally a full-size camera yeah. pointing with a man, yes. pointing at the back of a blue tits yeah. nest, and a bloody great light shining. Yeah. I mean, how they did it. God it works, was. though. Well, it did work, but ten years later, we had tiny mini cameras. Yes, yeah, things uh, started to move very quickly. And it, and it worked. Yeah. You know, I mean, even now, they look primitive. Today. Um, I feel we've uh, leapt ahead a bit, haven't we? Well, we're jumping around slightly, but that doesn't matter. But um, but um, uh, I could be wrong about this, but I feel like there's obviously a lot of nature writing happening. Um, not just yourself. I've got a pile of your books next to me, but there's a lot of nature writing out there at the moment, particularly in the past five or ten years. Do you think Spring Watch and Autumn Watch? have been partly responsible for a kind of resurgence in people's interest in nature? 
I mean, I would certainly feel like there's more public discussion of it now than there was, you know, when I was growing up in the 90s, maybe. I think you, it's very difficult to disentangle cause and effect. Mm, so yeah. you could argue that programmes like Spring Watch kick-started, and the Bird Fair, the British Bird Watching Fair, you know, yeah. kick-started a sort of more communal and more passionate interest in British wildlife and nature. Yeah. Or you could argue that that was happening and they reflected it. Mm. I suspect it's a bit of both. I yeah. suspect that you get a, a, a sort of virtuous circle where something happens which reflects a change. Someone thinks, you know, let's start, let's do a series on bird watching, and it happens, or you know, yeah. let's do a live series. But that is only getting big numbers because people are starting to go out. And then they go out because they've watched Spring Watch and the Wildlife Trust and the RSPB pick up on this and run walks and events, you know. And, you know, so that's really, I think, what's happened. But yes, in 20 years, 20 years ago, new nature writing didn't exist. Mm. And people will point to people like Richard Maybe, great writer, but for a long time in the 60s, 70s and 80s, 70s and 80s, he's writing very good books like Food for Free and the Unofficial Countryside, but they're not they're not actually what you would call the new nature writing because there's no market for it, or if there is, publishers aren't interested in doing yeah. it. And there's an obsession with scientific writing, there's an obsession that you can't be anthropomorphic or anthropocentric. And most nature writing is a bit of both. Um, one can argue quite coherently that it's gone a bit far now, that nature writing is now all about the author and not mm. about nature. Mm. Um, that's not true of great books like H is for Hawk, which balances the two, and I think that's important to balance the two. You know, I don't believe in pure nature writing. Just about nature would be a bit dull, I think. You've got to have the person in there. But I think too many books by lesser authors, um, who obviously I'm not going to mention, um, have sort of... They've jumped slightly on that bandwagon, and they're now... They need to row back from having themselves at the centre. Um, a woman who I can't remember her name, she's a Dorothy Wordsworth expert. She wrote a very funny article in the Oldie magazine, basically saying Dorothy Wordsworth didn't give a toss about what the Lake District thought about her, and that's why she wrote so well about it. Um, and I think that's true. I think there's a lot of people sort of making a spiritual connection with nature and landscapes that only really exist in their own mind. Mm. It's quite a subtle difference because I think there are spiritual connections with nature and there are great writers like Helen MacDonald, Mark Cocker, who do explore that connection very well. But they're always still writing about nature. They're not not self-indulgent. And I think some authors now are getting a bit self-indulgent. And the danger is that it will go more that way because publishers just want more nature books you know they become the new thrillers they're the new black everyone wants them yeah it's interesting actually you mentioned Dorothy Wordsworth it's almost I mean it's a little bit like you know you say 20-30 years ago people were writing very scientifically it perhaps mirrors a little bit the kind of romantic writers the romantic poets Mm. reacting a little bit to very factual scientific enlightenment writing and thinking yes that's possibly true although of course my favourite um poet of that period, John Clare, didn't like the Romantic poets because, as he said, they wrote about um, their own fancies and not about nature as she should be described, mm, most of that yeah. effect. And Keats, Keats yeah. had a bit of a go back at him, you know. So yeah. these, these tensions were there then. Um, and the Romantic poets, again, were, were, were often really not really writing about nature at all. They were writing extremely well about the human condition and yes. their yeah. own... Um, Thoughts on life, you know, Ode to a Nightingale is not really about nightingales. No. Whereas Ke- Claire's poem about nightingales is definitely about nightingales. And whether one is, I mean, Ode to a Nightingale is probably a greater poem, but Claire's is a greater nature poem. Mm. You know, so, but yeah, there has been this extraordinary boom in nature writing. I'm now teaching nature writing at Bath Spa University. Um, and we discuss this a lot. We discuss you know, why this has happened and, and what the implications are. The ironies of the fact that as nature disappears, there's more books about it. Mm. Is that another reason? Millennial fears. Um, but yes, it's it's taken off in a way that you could never have imagined even 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> there, was a, there was a joke on one of the BBC comedy programmes um, on TV last week 
where someone said they'd heard about this fantastic new series called Planet Earth 2, and they wanted to move to the second planet Earth because it looked much better than the one that we're on. Oh, that's very funny. (laughs) Well, that brings up a very valid point about the fact that nature films cannot but help give you the impression that everything's fine. Yeah. Even if, and they are saying in Planet Earth 2, you know, there are problems, and they don't shy away from those, although they don't focus on them as much as probably they should... Um, you can't help it. You know, it's like if we made a film for Springwatch about puffins and we're saying puffins are in decline, the way we show that is to show a load of puffins. Yeah. And impressionistically, and television is, as a boss of mine once told me, an anecdotal and impressionistic medium. Mm. It's not very good at facts and it's not very good at um, concepts. It's very good at making you feel. And Planet Earth 2 is brilliant at making you feel. So what all nature films do, which is wonderful, particularly David's films, is connect you with things you could never possibly see or exist, yeah. you know, or, or, or imagine existed. Um, but there's always been the downside that by doing that, they still give you the impression that things are fine. And I think that's an extremely perceptive comment to have said that because, you know, yeah, we, we only have one planet and we are messing it up. And that is not really conveyed in, with the very few exceptions, I think Springwatch conveys it sometimes very well. I think yeah. the Lost Land series, the Expedition series, which I had nothing to do with, but they were with George McGavin and Gordon Buchanan. Um, oh, yes, they were, yeah. And they went off to places and said, look, yeah. we're on a quest to see all these species. It's amazing, but it's all in trouble. Yeah. Uh, and people loved it because they weren't, they were up front with the environmental message, but they still showed you great stuff. And I thought that they were very immediate, they were very real, they were very, you know, the heir to Bill's programmes very much, you know. George is very like Bill. I've worked with him, he's fantastic, he's very good at improvising, he's Mm. extremely, you know, engaging. Gordon's the same, you know, I think they're, they're, they're able to put these things across and to put the complexities across and the problems and the issues in a way that people will listen to. Do you think the do you think the conservation challenges that wildlife in the UK or more widely faces today are similar to those you know fifty years ago, or do you think they're actually of a different oh, type really and magnitude? Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think climate change. You know, there are always local issues: habitat mm. loss, shooting, poisoning, persecution. Well, they they look like you know minor issues. I mean, the way that birds of prey have recovered since DDT, I mean, which nearly devastated all their population, yeah. shows that if you take away the problem like that, you can bring back wildlife. And therefore, I'm optimistic in the sense that if we could get our farming subsidies right and farm the land for wildlife as well as food, we could bring back farmland wildlife very quickly. It wouldn't take yeah. long. Climate change is another issue altogether, as you know. <laughs> you know and it's, it's So I think there are many problems and one of the criticisms of wildlife television like Springwatch and the books I write and the books other people write is that a lot of them focus you know on the place we know they focus on Britain and it's sort of irrelevant because you know we need to save the world now you know going back to our idea about local patches I don't really agree with that because I think you have to start where you are Mm. but yes of course there's a danger that it can appear very parochial what we're all doing um, because it it's focused on where we are, partly because, as I said when we did the series Nature of Britain with Alan Titchmarsh, the, the unofficial strap line was it's special because it's ours. You know, why is a robin special? There's 200, 300 different species of chat-like bird around the world, like the robin. Mm. Two of them are famous, the robin and the nightingale. Yeah. You know, why is that? Well, because of cultural, um, their cultural influence and their place in British culture, actually, fundamentally. Yeah. Um, and that's made them special. They're, they're obviously in, biologically no more special than a, you know, a, a white-browed robin chat in mm. Africa, which is a very beautiful bird that doesn't have all these cultural attachments to it, um, or certainly doesn't have many. So I think, you know, we, we, we have to be quite careful, but all we can do is do what we love doing because... You can't, you, if you're writing about nature or making programmes about it, you have to do what, what you're passionate about. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask, with these big complicated conservation questions like climate change or like grouse shooting or whatever they are, do you think our current 
conservation model, the big conservation organisations are set up to deal with them or do you think we need to change from the model that we've been using for a few decades or do you think we are changing and do you think that's not fair? I mean I think conservation organisations have changed a lot over time. I mean the RSPP started off purely as an animal welfare single Mm. issue pressure group. It was going down that direction in the 1920s when Max Nicholson and his colleagues had a sort of um, almost organised a coup and took it over as a bird protection organisation. When I was growing up, it was all about species. It then, um, has always been very good at, at saying one thing to its members, but working behind the scenes in a slightly more complex way. So, for example, mm. when I was growing up, people would write letters saying, why on earth are you buying Abernethy forests? That's completely pointless. You should be protecting ospreys and capercaillies. And it's like, yeah, well, that's why we're doing it. But, you know, um, but the RSPB was very good at promoting species because that's what people like, Mm. and they still do, and they still do that very well, and they should do. Um, But beavering away behind the scenes on transport policy and climate change and all the other things that that the RSPB does, and does very well, and the Wildlife Trust are the same. Um, I think they could be more outspoken. I think they could all be. It's a very difficult climate to be outspoken in because the media can shoot you down and the RSPB's been struggling with this campaign um, you know, against them. You forgot the birds. And it's it's been quite hard for the RSPB to know how to respond. I think the tactic they've taken, which is basically not to respond very much, is probably the best way, in, ultimately. But part of me wants to... Um, you know, do what Chris Packham did on the Today programme, take on Ian Botham at his own game, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's very difficult. It's particularly difficult when they have someone like Botham, you know, a great cricketer, a great man, um, who's completely wrong about the illegal killing of hen harriers, you know. Mm. What does he not understand about the words against the law? Mm. But, you know, um, I think the RSBB and the Wildlife Trust and National Trust tread a very fine line, Um even their members don't always agree with everything they do. They can't do. They're, you know, they're diverse, as diverse as any other group of people. Um, so it's tough, you know, and I think I'm, I'm lucky. I'm, my role in conservation is purely advisory or honorary. You know, I'm the president of the Somerset Wildlife Trust and an RSPP council. I can speak for myself. I don't speak for those organisations. I'm always very clear about that. Um I'm able to do that and I'm in a very privileged position but I do support all their work I think you know all the conservation I get very fed up with people who say oh I've resigned from this organization because I'm you know I don't agree with its policy on this well tough fight its policy on that then you know you can't do that you have to support these organizations I've been a member of the RSPB since I was about eight um, you know and, and I just think that people who aren't members aren't supporting the work that these organisations do, but claim to be naturalists or conservationists should look very hard at where they are. Mm. Um, And you mentioned Somerset Wildlife Trust. So Somerset is where you live now. um, And you've written in some of your books about the wildlife here. What's special to you about Somerset? What do you like about this county? God, what don't I like? God's (laughs) own county. I love it. Um, We moved here 10 years ago. I had a very young family. They were two, one and one when we moved. So they're Somerset children. They've grown up here, they're getting a lot of the benefits of freedom that I had as a child that a lot of children don't have. It's fantastic for wildlife, fantastic people. I love the people in Somerset. They're very friendly, they're very welcoming, they don't treat you as an incomer. Um, you know, and I've, I've, I love everything about it. And what is so extraordinary is in the 10 years since I've been here, when we arrived, the year we arrived, on the hottest day of the hottest month on record, I think the first booming bitten had been heard that year. Yeah. There were no great white egrets. There were very few otters. There were no cattle egrets. There were no little bitterns. There were no night herons, which had been seen recently. Um, there were one pair of marsh harriers. There were very few bearded tits. Yeah, all these birds and animals have, have, have come back in the last 10 years. So goodness knows what the next 20, 30, 40 years are going to be like, and I'm going to be here to see it, you know. Um, but more importantly for me, people always said to me, why don't you live in the country? You know, you're a bird watcher. Well, actually, I love cities and I loved where I lived in, in the suburbs of the cities. But for me, it's opened up a new appreciation of nature and of local nature, particularly when I wrote Wild Hairs and Hummingbirds, the natural history of an English village. It's my very ordinary parish, 
slightly unusual, not many trees being on the levels, a bit wetter than most places, but broadly a place, as Mark Cocker writes about Claxton, a place where you have to focus on common things because there aren't many rare things, and that's something that Mark has pushed very strongly in his writing, um, which I admire him a lot for, that this idea that, that we need to focus on what at least what used to be common. You know, we need to focus on skylarks and house sparrows and barn owls and, you know, and, and not always on rare things. And I think, you know, that's a very valid point. So Somerset's given me the best of both worlds. I see amazingly, you know, I went out yesterday and saw, you know, frame-filling, scope-filling views of Great White Eagle. You can't not see them now. I saw a bitten really well. I saw three kingfishers. This was just on a little walk around the marshes with a group of members of the local ornithological society. And the starlings from the title of one of your books, they, and I've been down here to Somerset myself to see those in the winter, they are, for me, one of the best wildlife spectacles we have in this country. Yeah, I think at its best it is the greatest spectacle. And what I love about it is you've got crowds of people, hundreds sometimes, um, as some grumpy birdwatcher said to me, they haven't even got bird, they haven't even got binoculars with them. Well, no, they haven't because they're <laughs> you don't need them. They're normal people, uh, <laughs> and they've come in. You don't need them, but they've come here and they've they've heard about this, and they come from far and wide, and they come locally. I've taken so many, you know, friends who we've met through my kids at school. You know, their parent, the, their friends' parents. I mean, they've they've brought up here. They've never been there. Mm. So many people here, uh, you know, are local people born and bred and have never been to see it and we go down there and they are utterly amazed by this and we're very proud of that Somerset doesn't shout very much about it, its wonders both its natural wonders and the fact that you've got Wells Cathedral Glastonbury Tor and Abbey and Cheddar Gorge within 10 minutes of where the starlings are you know and I, I think the future for Somerset is a really strong wildlife tourism offering where you've got all this other fantastic stuff as mm. well you know it, it's it's a lovely place to live um you know and uh, yeah and I, i'm looking forward to spending the rest of my life here um and going back to a theme that we discussed earlier bird watching being special for the people as well as the birds if there were one or two could you pick out one or two moments from your travels around the world or just in the uk or maybe even somerset or moments that were special, not just for the wildlife that you saw at that time, but also for the people or the person you were with? Well, I suppose, you know, a lot of my professional life, teams on Big Cat Diary, teams on Spring Watch. I was back on Spring Watch this year doing the commentary on the, the red button and the, the online um, live wildlife cameras with these wonderful array of colleagues, some of whom I've known for 20, 30 years and are very mm. close friends, and others, new, young really interested really passionate about wildlife you know and it was wonderful that so that for me sharing that and sharing it with the audience I was talking about the wildlife as Suzanne my wife said you're being paid to witter about birds for several hours a day well that's fine I can do that you know um and it was a real joy because we got lovely response on Twitter and Facebook and things from the audience but also from colleagues um and for me, you're sharing wildlife with people. I'm an evangelist for wildlife. I said that at the Communicate conference the other day, and one man took exception to this, but I don't care, because I am. I'm, I'm trying to convert people to a passion for wildlife. I suppose the most special moments were early on in my relationship with my wife, Suzanne. Um, we have a shared love of birds. We met when I led a birdwatching trip that she came on, a birdwatching course, and we had some wonderful times in... Um, Trinidad Tobago, on Thursley Common, you know, just places around Britain and around the world, um, you know, Kenya, the Gambia, where we went on our honeymoon, you know, and that that has been very special because, you know, I met my wife through birds, my children exist, you know, through that, my young children, you know, and, uh, and also going out with them, you know, I've had amazing moments with them. If you look at the cover of this birding life, it's me and a very young Charlie looking at some smew... Somewhere. I can't remember if we ever did go and look for Smew, but you know that was done by Robert Gilmore to illustrate the fact that my life is wrapped up with my family and my friends and the people I go bird watching with. You know, for me, I love going out on my own, but I love going out with one or two other people, you know, mm. or a group, and you know, we enjoy wildlife together. Mm. Um, and what's What's coming up next? What are you looking forward to in the next couple of months, whether it's wildlife or writing or TV or whatever? Well, my biggest challenge, I've given up TV. 
Um, quite deliberately, actually. It may happen again, but I don't think so. I think I did what I wanted to do, and I left on a high, and I that's it now. I'm doing too many other things. I teach MA in Travel and Nature Writing at Bath Bar. That's really, really exciting. It's been really hard work, but very rewarding. Great students, really talented writers um, from last year and this year's crop again. You know, I've got more this year. So um, looking forward to that. I'm going off to the Indian Bird Fair in December on uh, what is, can only be described as a jolly. And then I'm going to Tanzania in search of a bird called Mrs. Moreau's Warbler because my next book will be called Mrs. Moreau's Warbler, How Birds Got Their Names. And it's a look mostly at, well, English bird names and mostly of British species but it includes Mrs Moreau's warbler found in the Uluguru Mountains in Tanzania and named by great ornithologist Reg Moreau after his wife Winifred and I'm going to go on a quest to see that bird and I better blooming well see it. (laughs) Yes okay yeah good luck with that. Um, Thank you. I think we can probably stop there. Is there anything else you want to say or anything that I haven't asked about that you wanted to talk about? I suppose the only other thing was something you know a lot about, AFON, a focus on nature yeah. and next generation birders. And, yeah. and I was saying the other day at the Communicate conference that you know, I, I wrote five years ago, wrote a report on for the National Trust about the lack of young people, particularly children, engaging with nature. Yes. And I believed in that and I believe in it now. It's still a problem. It's still an issue. But <clears throat> a couple of years later, I came across a focus on nature. I helped set it up vaguely. But this is an organisation dedicated to networking young people who have a passion for wildlife, nature, conservation, the environment in all sorts of ways, whether they want to work in filmmaking or writing or policy or photography or blogging or, you know, um, education, you know, or conservation or as wardens or as artists. You know, it's a fantastic array of, of talents and people. And when I see them, my favourite moment now of the year, my favourite weekend of the year is the British Birdwatching Fair, third weekend of August in Rutland. Come along if you haven't been. And my favourite time is on the Saturday evening when after the fair finishes, you guys, these wonderful young men and young women, some of them very young, some of them children, some 30-odd, um, but they all gather around and chat to each other and have a sort of team photo taken and... I love being part of that. I love the fact that I suppose to your generation, I'm like Ian Wallace and James Ferguson Lees were for me. Only I hope I'm not, you know, quite so. I suppose they were remote figures for me when I was growing up, just because of the nature of, of communication then. I think what's great is that we're talking between the generations. Mm. And I really look forward in my dotage to, in my 80s and 30 years' time, to seeing so many of you basically running everything and hopefully doing a slightly better job than we've done. Um, <laughs> you know, and writing books and doing films or whatever. Um, and part of it is because it keeps me young. You know, I feel that by engaging with this generation, I'm learning a lot, hopefully passing on some of my experience to them. But probably learning more because learning what matters to them and why they want to engage with nature and how they do it and it's that's been an absolute privilege Mm, yeah to reflect back on what what you just said a little bit I think I think one of the powerful and one of the most meaningful things that it's provided for me has been that community whether it's the online community that a focus on nature and these other groups provide through social media whether it's the real world community where you get to meet up with people. Um, and my bird watching during my high school years, during my teenage years, really faded away because I didn't have any friends who were into it. Um, and I see now the value, even still at the age of 30, but particularly for some of the younger members, the value of having that community of people who share that common interest. And in addition, like you say, people like yourself and I, you know, you know, there are moments when I think, oh my God, Stephen Moss is texting me. Um, <laughs> and sort of five years ago or ten years ago, you were a... Stalking you. Know, <laughs> you were a name on the front of books. And, you know, now I know fantastic people like you. And there is that dialogue between the generations that passes on wisdom and experience and I think is really important, whether it's learning from authors of decades or centuries gone by or whether it's chatting to people who are only you know, 10, 15, 20 years older or whatever. Mm. Um, Those kinds of dialogues are really crucial 
to making better progress than maybe maybe has been done in the past. Absolutely. Because, I think you use the word community. Yeah. I mean, that's really important to me as a community yeah. of wildlife enthusiasts now. And when Finley Wilde asked me to write for his blog, 13 Years Wild, what was I doing when I was 13? Well, mm. yes, I had the freedom. Mm. And Daniel and I cycled off to, you know, hitchhike around Norfolk and cycle around to Dungeness and things. But what I did make the very clear point was in that blog was that it wasn't as good as it is now. I'd mm. rather be 13 now and have this community of people around me. I was lucky I had one friend, but, you know, I wish there'd been more of us. And, you know, I think that things are better than they were. A lot of people look back and go, oh, it was better in the good old days. But there were things that were good. The freedom for children when they were much younger was good. But most other things are better, <laughs> certainly in the birdwatching and wildlife community. And yeah. I think that that's incredibly important. Yeah, great. All right, I think we'll leave it there. That's a really nice note to end on. Thank you very much. No, thank you. Great. 